Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Those of you that have been around uh, recently know that we are studying the book of Exodus, and we've slowed down as we have reached Exodus 20, because in Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments, and we've been taking them one at a time, and today... We are going to be at the ninth commandment, which you'll find in Exodus 20, verse 16. But before I read the ninth commandment, I want you to meet a man named Richard Phillips. On March 28, 2018, a legal spokesperson for the state of Michigan made a statement, And it read in this way, following a review of the evidence, the prosecution dismissed the charges against Mr. Phillips and exonerated him. It has been determined that the case against Mr. Phillips was based primarily on the false testimony of the main witness in the case. And then he concluded by saying the system failed him. What makes Mr. Phillips unique is that in the history of the United States, he is the longest serving inmate to win exoneration. Richard Phillips served almost 47 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Why? Because of a key witness in his case who gave a false testimony against him. When people give false testimonies against their neighbor, it results in horrific suffering, pain, and injustice. Exodus 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now this commandment specifically is really talking about a witness in a court setting, a legal setting. And we are told, and they were being told, that we are not to give false testimony against your neighbor. If we do that, it is a great violation, not just against them, but against society, against culture, against us as a people, because we depend upon true testimonies for our justice system. You know, eyewitnesses are still vitally important in legal cases today. We rely heavily upon truth-telling among witnesses. And we live in a world where there are other ways to find evidence in a case, to discern evidence. For instance, 
We have video surveillance. They didn't have that in the biblical era. In fact, in most cases, because we can take videos or pictures from our cell phones, we can have video recordings in a lot of cases, legal cases. Audio recordings are now common. Satellite imagery is possible. We have this whole field called forensic science, where forensic scientists can do fingerprint analysis or DNA testing or lie detector tests or autopsies if there's been a death. It tells a lot about how a person died. We have forensic accountants that can chase a money trail. We have people who can analyze cell phone data or social media posts that all provide evidence to a legal case, yet still, even in our era with so many ways to uh, and resources for legal investigations, we still rely heavily upon eyewitness testimony. And what is true for us was even more true for the biblical world who did not have these other investigative resources. In fact, in the biblical world, they relied almost exclusively on eyewitness testimonies in order to get to the bottom of a case. Here's how it worked in most places in the biblical world. A town or a city would have elders who would be selected, who would serve essentially as both judges and jurors. And these city elders would allow people to come from the area, the community, at a certain time each day, each week, to the city gates. And if a person had an offense or a case that they wanted to bring to the city elders, they would show up at the city gates at that time, and then the accuser would make his case before the elders. And then after the accuser, the accused or the defendant would have a chance to respond, to tell his or her side of the story. And then witnesses would join in and be interviewed by the city elders and after that, there would be a conversation between all four, between the city elders, the accuser, the accused, and the witnesses. And they would continue the conversation until the city elders felt like they had enough data, enough information to make a ruling, a decision. And then they would part for a little while and they would put their heads together and discuss it and then come back with a ruling. If and when there were false witnesses, it would fail the whole system and would fail their people. And the end result would be horrible suffering, tragic pain, and injustice. And it happened. Even in the biblical world where they were told, especially God's people were told that there were harsh consequences for this, for perjury. In fact, you, if you uh, gave false testimony, whatever the accused would, whatever the punishment they would receive, even if it was capital punishment, that would be transferred to you if you were found guilty of being a false witness. But even in that world, with the stakes that high, 
they still had false witnesses. In fact, there's three kind of classic case studies or examples, if you will. The first one I talked about just a few weeks ago was a guy named Naboth who had a vineyard. We read about him in 1 Kings 21. And King Ahab, who lived near Naboth, coveted his vineyard. He had a beautiful piece of land with a a very productive vineyard on the land. And King Ahab wanted to buy the vineyard. But Naboth did not want to sell it because it had been part of his inheritance. And he wanted to pass it along to his children, his family estate. And so he turned down King Ahab's offer. Well, Ahab comes back to the royal palace and apparently very, and uh, he was uh, sullen and uh, pouting. And the queen, who happens to be his wife, quick, the wicked queen Jezebel, hears the story and takes matters into her own hands. She writes letters to the city elders of Jezreel, and she puts the king's seal on it as if it were coming from the king, King Ahab. And she basically instructs them to find some false witnesses, some scoundrels is how the text describes them, who will falsely testify against Naboth. And then the elders are to pronounce a judgment of death. And that's exactly what happened. Naboth ends up being found guilty of a crime he never committed and was stoned right then and there. And then Ahab steals his land and God later has to judge him harshly. Example number two, Acts chapter six, New Testament character named Stephen, one of the most godly people in all the Bible, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen kind of upset some of the Jews who are jealous of him, and we're told they round up some false witnesses, go before the authorities of their day, which was the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and ultimately Stephen is found guilty based on their false testimonies, and he too receives capital punishment. He dies by being stoned to death. Example number three. Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 26 tells us that false witnesses were arranged to testify against our Lord Jesus. And ultimately, he was found guilty of blasphemy by the Jewish leaders. And they took that charge and they gave it to the Roman authorities and insisted that Jesus be murdered. And ultimately, that's exactly what happened. When there are false witnesses who give false testimony, it always results in horrific suffering, terrible pain, and total injustice. How does God feel about this? Well, we have lots of places in Scripture that talk about it. One of them is found in Proverbs chapter 6 where Solomon writes, he says, there are six things the Lord hates, 
seven that are detestable to him. Six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable. And here they are. The first one, verse 17, is haughty eyes. Proud or arrogant, greedy eyes is what that's saying. Two, a lying tongue. Three, hands that shed innocent blood. Four, verse 18, a heart that devises wicked schemes. Five, feet that are quick to rush into evil. And here's six, look at verse 19, a false witness who pours out lies. And then finally, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. You can see a lot of connecting points with the things that God hates, that God detests, that relate directly or indirectly to the ninth commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. God hates it. God detests it. And God will bring judgment when it happens. Well, what are we to do with this? What are some of the, of the applications that we can glean as we bring this principle from the ninth commandment into our world today? Well, first of all, if serving as a witness in a court of law, you and I must tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. This is not just United States law. This is God's law. You and I must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we get a little more kind of help uh, and explanation in Exodus. If you just flip over from Exodus 20, just a few pages, to Exodus 23, the first few verses in there talk about specifics related to the ninth commandment. It tells us in verse 1, do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Then later in verse 2, it says, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Don't be influenced by the crowd or peer pressure. And ultimately, verse 3, do not show favoritism. Now, there are situations where people are pressured into trying to protect somebody by lying in court. In fact, recently, Mona and I uh, watched a, a movie that was basically talking about this, this very issue. And uh, it was a movie about an inner city school in Long Beach, California, where this teacher came in with some unorthodox styles and tried to reach these pretty hard and tough kids, many of them growing up uh, in gangs. Lots of ethnic gangs in that area, lots of violence. And the kids then began to write in their diaries. She was able to get them to share their stories, and it actually got published and became a New York uh, bestseller. And so in that diary, there was a young lady. In the movie, her name is uh, Eva, but in real life, her name is Maria Reyes. And she witnesses a crime that was instigated by her community, her friends, her 
gang, if you will, drive-by shooting where they missed the target and accidentally killed an innocent bystander who happened to be the boyfriend of one of her friends in her English class at school. And she was pressured heavily by her family, by her friends, even by the gang members to stand up for her own, to protect her own, to do what she had to do in court, and which was saying she needed to lie to defend the guilty. But based on what she had been learning in class, based on the relationships she had developed with her neighbors, classmates, she decided to tell the truth at a great cost to her. Her life was in great danger after she honored what God says we all must do in court. Tell the truth no matter the cost. That's what we have to do if we're ever in a situation like that. A second thing that we're supposed to do, a second application, I've stated it this way, just as God embodies truth, we, his followers, are called to live with the utmost of integrity. Now, God, we know, is truth. In fact, we can say this with all of the Trinity. God the Father, if you look at Hebrews 6, verse 18, it tells us very clearly that it is impossible for God to lie. God the Son, Jesus, actually said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth. God, the Holy Spirit, in John 15, 26, we're told, is the spirit of truth. And later, we're also told that he reminds us of all truth. So God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God, God is a God of truth, and he expects his people, his children, us, the church, to be truth tellers. If we step out of the courtroom case and we look at the principle behind the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, we begin to see that there's all kinds of connecting points in so many areas of our lives. We need to be people of the highest and utmost integrity. What does that look like for us? Well, of course, we need to keep our word. When we give our word, we need to live by the motto, my word or my word is my bond. We need to be people who are trustworthy people in the community, in our workplace, among our neighbors, at our church. We need to be people who honor our commitments. We need to be people who keep our promises and follow through with what we say we will do even the small or seemingly small, insignificant promises, even the promises we make to ourselves. We need to be people who value our neighbor and treat them in the way that we would want to be treated, which means more than not lying about them in a court of law. 
It means do not slander your neighbor. Do not speak unkindly about them on Facebook or social media or any other resource for communication. Do not gossip about your neighbor. Do not participate in someone else's gossip. Do not make rash judgments about your neighbor. Do not believe everything you see or read in the social media post. Do not damage your neighbor's reputation. Do not take advantage of your neighbor. And in a culture like ours that values capitalism, this is something we need to keep in mind in our relationships, in our business dealings. We are not to be a people that uh, try to win in a way where our neighbor loses. We need to look for win-win scenarios and not take advantage of our neighbors. And of course, neighbor is defined very broadly in this passage and in the Bible. Our neighbor is really anyone with whom we have a relationship with, any human being that we come in contact with. In a world of social media, if we're gonna honor the spirit of the ninth commandment, we're going to have to be super, super careful. So be careful, be careful. The spirit of this law is that we love our neighbors by being trustworthy and truthful and honest with them, keeping their best interest in mind. Application number three, remember that the credibility of our witness about eternal things depends upon our witness about earthly things. I love Acts chapter one, verse eight. This is some of Jesus' final words before he ascended to heaven. And he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I believe that was a message not just for the first century disciples and followers. It was a message for all of us as followers of Christ. One of our great missional callings that we all share is to be witnesses for Christ. And part of that is pointing them to faith, sharing the gospel with our lifestyles and with our words. How are they going to believe us if we're not trustworthy in earthly things? How are they going to believe us in the heavenly things and the gospel if we've not been found trustworthy with earthly things? And finally, my fourth application is graciously extend grace when grace is needed. None of us are gonna be perfect in honoring both the letter of this law and the spirit of this law, especially the spirit of this law. We're going to do things that are hurtful, say things. When we do, we need to immediately try to address that and apologize, seek forgiveness. But on the other side of it, if somebody has hurt you, 
If somebody has said something unkind about you or gossiped or treated you unfairly, your job, my job, is to extend grace. Graciously extend grace when grace is needed. We are recipients of grace, God's amazing grace. So we always need to extend grace when it's needed. In a video interview statement by Mr. Phillips, the man that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, he said this. He said, we're all going to go through problems in our lives. Everybody is going to have ups and downs. It's not so much the storms that you have to go through. It's whether or not you can learn to dance in the rain. If I can do that, it won't be such a total loss. Now, I don't know if Richard Phillips is a believer or not, but he sure sounds like one. And I know that we as believers need to be able to extend that kind of grace to a world that will hurt us, that will cause us to suffer, that will bring pain and injustice our way. Will we learn to dance in the rain when the storms come? We serve a good God. We serve a God of truth who expects us to tell the truth. We serve a God of love who expects us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we serve a God of grace who expects us to graciously give out grace for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.